think about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring George Daniel, and he'll be answering your most important questions on nymph fishing. The show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask George a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, uh, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form on the right column of our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with George Daniel about nymph fishing. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of, of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in the upper Delaware in New York and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all types of fish and to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. Before we introduce George, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawings. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under George's section that says click to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of George's latest book, Nymph Fishing, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the questions or questions, sometimes I do a two-part question, that we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talked about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, take notes, pay attention, and maybe you can win George's book, Nymph Fishing. Our guest tonight is George Daniel. George began fly fishing at age six in Potter County, Pennsylvania growing up along a native brook trout fishery designated as a kids-only section. And being the only kid in the village who fished, George was able to fly fish and practice a lot, so he developed a true passion for it. Through his teens, much of his fly fishing knowledge was self-taught. However, when George was 14, his family relocated to central Pennsylvania, where at a local fly shop he found himself talking to his fly fishing idol, Joe Humphreys. Joe kindly took George under his wing and began providing him with his first formalized fly fishing instruction. 
When George was just 16 years old, Joe began to provide instruction on all levels, for example, the basic cast to advanced nymphing cast. George credits Joe for the, the bulk of his knowledge, but also graciously acknowledges many national and international fly fishing professionals who have worked with him during the past. Later, George had an opportunity to try out for the fly fishing team USA in Bend, Oregon. After qualifying for the team, George had the opportunity to compete in five world champion fly fishing championships, coach both the U.S. youth team and fly fishing team USA in four world championships. During this time, George has had an opportunity to travel the globe and learn from many of the best anglers in the world. George is a two-time U.S. national fly fishing champion and is ranked high, as high as fifth in the world. George's true passion is fly fishing education. He appears at clubs and fly fishing shows around the country where he conducts lectures and seminars. He also logs more than 280 days a year on waters near and far. He's not only an author of two highly regarded and best-selling books, he has also published articles in Fly Fisherman, uh, American Angler, and Fly Tire magazines. His most recent book, Nymphing, New Angles and Tactics, was recently released. George is an ambassador for a number of fly fishing companies, including Orvis, Tacky Fly Boxes, Flycraft Boats, Regal Vices, Golden Trout, Lanyards, and Loom. Currently, George is an adjunct professor at Penn State University, teaching the legendary angling courses his mentor, Joe Humphreys, taught for many years. He also operates a full-time guiding and fly fishing education service called Living on the Fly. George, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. No, it's great to be back, Roger. Thanks for having me. Well, good to have you. You're a busy man out there and have been the past few years. Uh, good for you. Um, looks like things are going well for you out there. So no, it's, uh, it's great when you can make a career out of something you love to do. It's uh, it's been a blessing so far. Yeah, and that's great. That's great. Well, you've come out with a new book, Nymph Fishing. Correct. New angles, tactics, and techniques. And I'd like to ask you. You know, it covers many strategies and techniques uh, in, along the lines of nymph fishing. What did you set out to accomplish with this book? Well, the big thing is, you know, you learn a lot. I think, you know, anyone that wants to be a, a lifelong learner, you know, you're always going to be growing, you're going to be learning as you go along. And, you know, when I wrote Dynamic Nymphing, that came out, I think, in 2011 maybe. So a lot had happened since uh, for about six, seven years in between times. And I got to travel. I got to spend a lot more time guiding and doing instruction. And Hopefully, I became a little better instructor, and then also I, I evolved uh, my approach greatly and, tr and tried to consolidate it uh, into some of the things that we'll be talking about later on this, this evening. But just, you know, the first book, Dynamic Nymphing, was a great book. It was a textbook. It was received well. But I wanted to make things hopefully a little simpler, you know, simplify things between contact nymphing, which is basically fishing without a bobber, versus suspension tactics. And explain that, you know, on the first book, a lot of the focus was on tight line tactics, but I kind of neglected a lot of the indicator approaches. Um, and, you know, as an angler, uh, you know, as a competitive angler, you're, you're forced to kind of comply to certain rules and regulations, and they're great anglers. But I think there are some, there are some scenarios and situations where, you know, indicators are going to be better, and there are going to be scenarios where drop shot or using weight on your leader. A supplemental weight is often going to be more productive than just using a true European nymphing rig where you use nothing but the weight of fly. So, you know, we'll cover a lot of those answers, but basically it's just kind of my evolution. A lot of the things I've learned uh, beyond, it's, it's basically like a, another edition of dynamic nymphing, but just kind of more modernized for 
my current approach. Right, right. More well-rounded, I would say, to all the, the possibilities. You um, you talk about different types of nymphing that you do. What, in general, what, if you were to categorize, what are the different types of nymphing that one should know about and use? Well, I mean, you can look at basically in two ways. I mean, you can look at it as, you know, contact nymphing. That, that is fishing without a bobber. And, you know, when you put this all into one area, I mean, you're talking about traditional United States tightline tactics, the tactics that Frank Sawyer used, uh, you know, in England. You're talking about the, the French, the Spanish, the Czech, the Poles, and all that. But, you know, fly fishing doesn't really have boundaries. And, you know, before there was always these specific, you know, scenarios where they were saying, you know, Polish techniques, short line, dragonflies, Czech nymphing, short leader casting across, and it goes on and on. And there are all these little nuances, but basically it's all the same stuff. You're just, you know, when you want to drift flies, you're casting up, you're drifting downstream. When you want to actually swing your flies and move them in the water column, you're going to be casting more over and across to set yourself up for the swing. So tight line nymphing and fishing without a bobber, I basically just put into contact nymphing, and that's all aspects of fishing without a bobber. And then there are times where suspension tactics, where you're actually using, like, actual manufacturing indicators or maybe a floating the cider or in situations where you want to float a dry fly as an indicator. So, you know, those are the two broad categories that I look at, contact and suspension rigs. Okay. And, you know, there's been, all, you know, what, in the, the past 10 years, the big, you know, um, to-do about your own thing and all the, the ones you just mentioned uh, but but going back, uh, Joe Humphreys was a contact nympher way back when, right? I mean, oh, yeah, sure? yeah. You know, it's a funny story. I, I've told this story a, a bunch of times. But, you know, after my first world championship in Portugal, it was 2006, he had me come back, you know, to his house and kind of explain to him some of the things I learned overseas. And, and I was talking about this thing called Czech nymphing. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I was Czech nymphing before the Czech Republic was a country. And, uh, you know, it's very <laughs> Very true, uh, but you know, a lot of the stuff gets recycled through. And, and one of the books, Joe Humphrey Trout Tactics, was kind of my bible. And then I started reading things uh, about Frank Sawyer, and so many of the things that we're doing today, Frank Sawyer was doing over a hundred years ago in England. So there are a lot of things that you know kind of get recycled through, uh, especially with the longer rods and European nymphing techniques. And right now. There is a big focus on European nymphing, and I think one reason why it's such a popular thing is just it just simply works. And and we'll talk about some of the nuances, but one of the things about this approach, fishing without a bobber, I think it's one of the easiest approaches to fishing in general. The casting, the, you know, the rigging, everything that we'll talk about later on, it is so simple when you compare it to the other facets of nymph fishing, like bobber fishing, etc. Okay, good, good. Well, um, Rick Takahashi starts us out here, and I've had Rick on the show uh, several times himself, so he's he's very well accomplished. And uh, yeah, Rick, he asks, Rick's, Rick, Rick's a great guy. Yeah, 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 wonderful person. Um, he asks, when and why do you make a determination of, on what style of nymphing technique you will use, i.e., uh, euro versus an indicator? What types of water conditions do you see that will determine the nymphing techniques you'll select? You use your own nymphing strategies when fishing larger waters or rivers. So it's combined like three questions there, but the, the key is, you know, uh, we're at the water. How do we determine what method to use? Are there some guidelines that you have? 
Yeah, there's a couple things to think about, and definitely that's a great question and kind of a loaded question, but a couple, at least two things right now that, that just popped to my mind. One is what I'm doing is I'm looking at the stream bottom, basically trying to understand, you know, am I fishing a stream that's a high-gradient stream? You know, and what I mean by high-gradient is if, if you are looking from the stream from a cross-sectional viewpoint, high-gradient streams tend to, you know, start at the top and then quickly drop down. And what I mean by that is a lot of these streams like you folks have uh, in the great you know, in the Rocky Mountains, especially the the freestone streams up in the hills, is that those streams go from the riffles and the runs. It goes from very shallow to very deep, all within a short area. So the stream bottoms are very uneven. And when you have conditions where fish are holding straight down the bottom, one of the things you need to think about is. The problem I see with suspension devices in a lot of those stream, streams that have very uneven stream bottoms is that when you're fishing an indicator or a suspension device, you're often fishing that fly at a fixed depth. The distance between the indicator and the fly can't really change a whole lot during the presentation. There's nothing you can do to really change that. It's at a fixed depth. And then when you are fishing a run that's, you know, or a riffle that starts at six inches and it goes down into a run and then into a pool, that ends at maybe six or seven feet, and, it, and all that change occurs from six inches to seven feet, all within like 10 feet, it's very difficult with a suspension rig to cover all that water based on, you know, one fixed depth. With a suspension tactic, what you are doing is essentially you, often you're holding the flies, you're putting the flies under tension, and we have what we call an inline sight or built into the leader, but what we can do is we can make a cast in the shallow rift, we can put that line leader under a little bit of tension, keep those slides moving in the shallow water. But the moment we go into a drop-off, what we can do is we can pause, we can hesitate, we can decrease tension, we can let the fly sweep under the rod tip, we can actually lower the rod tip or drop the cider a little bit into the water, and that basically allows us to follow the contours of the stream bottom. So one of the major advantages with tight line nymphing or, or contact nymphing, it gives you ultimate depth control. It allows you to fish super shallow to very deep all within one presentation. Compared to suspension tactics, you're fishing basically one depth all the way through. That's, that's one of the times where I will almost exclusively go to a tight line or a, suspend or a contact nymphing is that when I'm fishing streams with uneven stream bottoms. You know, and the other thing, too, is if, you know, you also need to look at the behavior of the trout, you know, where they're feeding the water column. You know, if you're fishing, like, I always, you know, go back to central PA, but, you know, our prime hatches, and we've got hatches throughout the year, but I would say, you know, late March, a lot of our olives, and then April, May, June, early part of June, that's when we get the bulk of our mayflies, you know, caddis and stoneflies and mayflies popping. Our fish that time of the year are super active. I mean, they are engaged. You don't need to be always bouncing your fly right in the bottom. And those are times and situations where I think maybe a suspension device, like a very shallow dry dropper rig or, you know, maybe a, a lightweight, you know, nymph under a, maybe a, a little bit of a balloon indicator, but fishing shallow. And I think suspension devices, whatever one you want to use, especially when you're casting longer distances, I think the suspension device can often hold your fly at that fixed depth that the fish are feeding at when they're suspended, I think, a lot better than what we can from a tight line or a contact nipping standpoint. So those are two things that just kind of pop into my mind. Uh, some of the other things I, I think about is if, 
if I'm fishing like the Delaware River or if I'm fishing the Henry's Fork. I've tried fishing the Henry's Fork in low water this summer, coming up behind the fish using a very long European nymphing leader and just basically casting over some of these fish you can spot. And as soon as that leader, even just a light leader, goes over the back of their over their backs, they're they're spooked in some of these flats. So in those situations, the only way I was actually able to catch any fish on the Henry's Fork this year was actually positioning myself upstream from a fish, finding its location, looking at the seam that's feeding into the fish, casting, making a short cast maybe 15, 20 feet from me into that seam, and basically just kicking out slack and, and feeding the drift 30, 40 feet downstream with a suspension device and basically feeding it to the fish. Uh, so those conditions where you have low clear water and you need to make a downstream presentation to a fish, I find that suspension tactics are going to probably be your probably your only approach or logical approach to getting those fish to eat. Mm -hmm. I think so, you also yeah. brought up uh, in your book about um, using suspension tactics uh, when fishing from uh, boats, right? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times what you're doing, I mean, you know, if you're fishing broken you know, water, I mean, I've tight-lined them a pile off the boat, but those are the streams usually I'm fishing like on the Madison or on the Yellowstone where you've got lots of chop and broken water. But there are going to be times where, you know, you need to cast down in front of the boat because by the time the boat gets across from the fish, the fish are spooked. So you need to make a downstream presentation. You know, you do a lot of that on the Delaware River. I do a lot of that on the South Holston down in Tennessee. So absolutely, usually from a drift boat, you know, when I'm casting downstream and trying to get distance between me and my fish, uh, I'm almost always using some sort of suspension device. Right, right, right. Um, the And I think in some of the bigger rivers, like we were talking before the show, like the Bighorn or something where you've got some, you know, basically deep, long runs, you can you can gauge the depth and basically stay at the same depth with that suspension device where it's not really changing that much underneath, right? Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Josh, well, we probably went through this. He says, when you, when would you say it's better to suspend, uh, to, to do suspension-style nymphing, and when would you prefer the Euro-style? Um, and so I think you've pretty much answered that one. But anything more to add? You know, the one thing I will, uh, yeah, the one thing I will say is it's, it's about weight. You know, when when you're fishing, with European nymphing strategies is that when you are fishing areas where there is, like, broken water, meaning that there are, you know, maybe pockets, seams, but within a, in a very short area, you know, width standpoint, you have a number of variable speed currents all within a short area. The problem with indicator tactics when you're fishing those areas with very distinct different speed currents in the short areas, it is incredibly challenging to make sure that the indicator or suspension device and the fly and the rig, everything are all in the same speed current. You know, and one of the nice things about contact nymphing is that basically it allows you to, the only point of basically contact that you have with the water is where that line leader come in contact with, with your leader or your sighter. So, it just allows you to dissect and allows you to really pinpoint specific seams without getting drag in, in your presentation. So I would say areas where there's lots of broken water or places where there's quick drop-offs. You know, if you're fishing like ahead of a run, for example, we were doing this today, I did a, a guide trip, you know, and a lot of people are surprised about, you know, with fly fishing, you know, for trout, 
it's no different than bass fishing. I think one of the most effective approaches with tight line nymphing or contact nymphing is actually having control after the cast is made, but actually fishing the fly on the fall and having control. You know, in so many of the takes, whenever you put a cast on the head of a run or a skinny riffle, the fish that are in there, they are going to hit that fly almost immediately because they're in there for one thing and one thing only, and that's the feed. And the moment those flies come in contact with the water, it's amazingly how quick, amazing how quick those fish will jump on the fly. The problem when you're working skinny riffles or ahead of a run off with an indicator is often it takes a couple seconds for that line and leader to finally become tight with the indicator and for you to actually have control. Where when you make a cast with an indicator in those waters, often you're missing a lot of times those fish eating that fly in the fall. And today we were just making blind casts and we were just working sunken ants just in ahead of a run just casting, and then we were fishing water, like a heavy little rift that was maybe two or three feet in depth. But, the, like, within a second, on a couple of these runs, within the first second, you know, half a second that fly landed on the water, the fish basically came off from the bottom and ate the fly on the drop. So the contact nymphing gives you that ability to truly have control from the very beginning to the very end. And it's incredibly crucial when you're fishing areas where there are, you know, heavy feeding patterns, like in a head of a run. Mm-hmm. And just uh, just came to mind what you just said too. If you're using an indicator of some sort, no matter what the size, uh, the splash itself from that going into the water may distract the the fish from that first take potentially. Oh, that absolutely. No. Yeah. Yep. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. So with an indicator, you may have to wait a few feet before they you know the fish downstream, and you may you know they see it see the fly, and uh, whereas the method you just mentioned, you're right there, right away. Uh, no loss <laughs> as far Correct. as water coverage. Uh, you're in the zone right away. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Um, George, uh, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got plenty more questions for you, so hang with me, and we'll be right back. Okay. Looking for that shot at permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with George Daniel about nymph fishing. If you'd like to ask George a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. But, George, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world, so tell us a bit about your – I know you just, you know, finished this book uh, the past year or so, um, but uh, tell us what's going on with your business and what's happening in your world. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously the most important part of my world right now is my family. You know, I have a, an 8- and 10-year-old boy-girl. They're back in school now, but we had a, a great family trip. We did about a five-week road trip out west, so spend time with them as much as I can. Had a great summer with them and the family, and the business has been good. I mean, uh, doing a, a good number of guided trips here in central PA, and then my speaking schedule is absolutely crazy. I just got back at uh, 1230 this morning from uh, a talk in Philadelphia, and 
was on the water guiding, and then uh, I'll be doing a, a number of talks, I think, in around Sacramento coming out this this month, and so it, it just goes on and on. Uh, basically, it's it's been good. Very fortunate. Um, you know, I'm booked out basically a year in advance when it comes to guiding and speaking, so that's a positive. Um, the thing I'm probably most stoked about right now is just uh, taking this part-time job teaching at Penn State, taking the old angling program that the program that was probably so critical, you know, basically was what kind of got me through college, um, just the angling program and, you know, my mentor, Joe Humphreys, and just that whole program and, and Joe's influence and his friendship and his mentorship over the last couple of years is just, over the years, has just meant so much to me. And it's incredibly, for a Pennsylvania kid, it's, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it just chokes you up a little bit, but just, the the history with George Harvey, Joe Humphreys, Vance McCullough, and all the the folks behind uh, these guys just you know created a, a great program, and it's an incredible honor for me to kind of carry the torch for them. Uh, and I'm just hoping I keep it lit uh, for a while before passing it on to the next person. But uh, that's kind of what I'm most excited about right now is the angling program at Penn State, and uh, I'm working on another draw. I'm working on another book. Uh, I'm actually going to be working on on the dry fly book that will be out here in about two years. So I've been spending a lot of time just experimenting and just kind of just studying, being a student like I did with the other other books I wrote. Uh, I have a, a DVD coming out or a video coming out uh, on some nymphing tying techniques and then also some uh, actual techniques with nymphs, nymph fishing. And then probably next year, uh, Jay Nichols and I uh, with Headwaters Books will be probably doing a, a two-part series on nymph fishing, kind of a, a real in-depth view a lot of things I talk about in the book, at least the way I approach nymph fishing, we're going to do uh, in, in video format. So it's it's about time that I join the 21st century. <laughs> well, good for you. You're very busy. Um, where can uh, you have a website that you can share with people so they can keep up with you all your travels? Yeah, so, and yeah, and, and I do a blog too. So and and it's free, huh. but it's just uh, living on the fly. It's L I V I N on the fly. And uh, yeah, please uh, please look me up. Look look me up, and uh, you know if you're interested, uh, take a look at the blog from time to time. And uh, thanks for participating. Yeah yeah, uh, living on the fly. L i v i n on the fly dot com. Right. Yes, sir. All righty, good. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, James in uh, Alpine, Wyoming asks, what aspect of nymph fishing is the most difficult to learn and master? What suggestions do you have so that we can overcome this obstacle? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times people start people with indicator tactics because they think it's easier, and, and I kind of I disagree. I think tight line nymphing, uh, and there are some questions down the road that we'll answer, but I think tight line contact nymphing is actually probably the easiest form of fly fishing. I think I think the most difficult form of fly fishing or nymph fishing is indicator tactics uh, because one, it requires often distance casting, a lot of casting, and not only are you casting, but now you are casting a wind-resistant item that's attached to your leader. Then you have a hinge, which is shot or a weighted fly, and then you often may have one or two flies on the other end. And then once you make the cast, if you can make the cast without getting tangled, then because there's line and leader on the water, we have to manage that line leader on the water through mending and we have to be able to put slack into our presentation to allow the drift to occur, but still have enough control that when a fish does strike, we can lift the rod tip and move the indicator to set the hook. So 
with indicator tactics, I think indicator fishing is by far the most technical, the most challenging aspect of, of nymph fishing. Um, and, you know, a good instructor it's, is worth their weight in gold, but just some of the simple things with, like, with indicator tactics, be, become a good caster. I mean, the one thing I will mention right here, and I know I'll probably get some hate mail from here, is one of, I think one of the things I've done uh, is, you know, you, you create an, an army of lobbers, people that can just fling weight, like with European nymphing. It's not just flinging weight. Sometimes you're casting, but the nymphing techniques that you're doing with contact nymphing, it's pretty simple. All we're doing is often using these lighter tip rods, and we're just basically flinging with the wrist in the cast. And people get so focused on that, and it's so effective that they actually forget or neglect to work on other aspects of their game, like actual casting. So the one thing I would recommend is just going into the yard. You know, if you want to work on indicator tactics, work on casting wind-resistant items, putting split shot, working on the timing, uh, getting the cast out. But the big thing with, I think the number one issue with indicator tactics is the mending. And one of the best tips I got was, you know, one of the many great people who I've had the honor of fishing with is a guy named Chuck Farneth, uh, who lives in Arkansas. And Chuck is just a master, just an absolute master of, of nymph fishing. Those, those waters that they're fishing on the white, like on the, the White River, the, the North Fork, uh, and so on, I mean, they have these long, long sweeping runs. And what Chuck can do so brilliantly is he's a great caster to begin with, but he can cast, you know, 60 feet upstream. And then as that line is coming back towards him, he can strip in a little bit of line. He can mend, make sure low mends. And then as that drift comes towards him, he can kick out a little bit more slack, throw that mend, and basically he can feed that 60 feet of line that he put upstream. Now he can feed it downstream below him. And what he's able to do there is basically cover 120 feet. But his mending principles, one of the things I learned most about mending is you've got to have slack to move outside the rod to, before you actually make the mend. And you need to do that fast because waters that you're fishing are fairly fast. And it's so difficult to explain this over the phone, but after you make a cast, the first thing you need to make sure you have is that there actually needs to be slack between your line hand and the reel. There needs to be line that is hanging off the reel. So once you make the cast, there needs to be slack. And one of the things he showed me was he would just basically put his rod tip right on the water's edge and use that as a tension and basically just make one wide sweep using the tension of that line to basically pull all that line off that water or off that reel, off that reel between the reel and the line hand, and put it off through the guides and then on t in front of the rod tip. And then all you end up doing is just coming up with a, a modified roll cast, moving that line and then just roll casting that slack towards the indicator. But the big thing with that mending, I'm telling you, is just getting that line quickly off the rod tip that you can redistribute into the water seams that is basically creating that drag. So just let that lie on the water, keep the rod tip on the water, and just make a wide sweep, an accelerated wide sweep. That line kicks outside the rod tip. Then you can elevate the rod tip, and then you can roll cast the slack towards your indicator, and that will give you a beautiful mend. Uh, but you need slack first, and you got to yeah. kick it off, and, and that's a great tip. Yeah, and without, without the slack, then you're jerking your indicator all over the place, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that I, I've seen some uh, folks do, too, is uh, too much casting with that big rig, you know. That, exactly. uh, one thing I learned from fishing in the salt and, and my guide in the salt, uh, 
uh, Charles Lessa, you know, is always at me. Quit false casting. Put one cast out there and hit the target, you know. Um, Correct. Uh, and for a lot of reasons, you know. So you got to be able to load that rod in one back cast and deliver and, you know, unload it in the front and put it where it belongs. And since I've used that technique with indicators, it's gotten a lot less tangles, you know what I mean? Because uh, the more junk you have in the air, the longer you have it in the air, the more chance that something's going to get wrapped around something, at least in my Correct. world. So, so anyway, um, rods. Um, I know people have questions about rods based upon indicator nymphing and contact nymphing. And there are some differences that you describe in your book about, you know, the benefits one way or the other. So if you could describe those benefits, but also maybe give everybody kind of a, a middle of the road, you know, maybe they all can't buy yeah. one of each rod. You know, what what are our options? Yeah, you know, the one thing I, I think you need to you need to really figure out is where you are fishing and, you know, how much power and speed do you need in your cast and so forth. Like, one of the things, you know, I live in central PA. We have a lot of, you know, small to medium-sized Spring Creek limestone streams. We have pretty small, narrow little valleys. So wind is usually not an option. And also because the streams are small and they're relatively shallow compared to a lot of streams uh, throughout the country, we can, I can pretty much get close uh, to these fish uh, in just about any time of the year. So the one thing, I, the one of the rods I've gone to now, it's, it's, more, it's a nymphing stick, but, you know, like one of the rods I'm using now is just, it's a ten and a half foot three weight. Uh, it's it's an Orvis Helios three, but it's it's a softer action rod. And the one thing I, I want to point out here too is, you know, I really try when I'm working with people or with anyone, I, I really challenge everyone to basically try to f- determine how close you can get to the fish before making the cast. And if you look at the way a blue heron stalks its prey, when it just slowly walks and get in position, and it, it just stops. It doesn't move, and then it, it strikes. One of the things I see so many anglers doing with, like, faster-action fly rods is that once they get in the position to make the cast, the cast isn't that long in, in central PA. And, and when you're fishing a traditional fast-action fly rod and you're working a short length of line, there's not much mass outside the guides to load the rod. So you have got to work pretty hard to make that cast work. And the rods that I'm using now for just about everything other than streamers is I'm using a lot of these European nymphing rods because they're not just for your – they are great casting rods for short-range casting. They're great for wet flies, and I can do it with dry fly fishing. But what I love about these rods so much is that I can stalk. I can get in position. I'm going to take a moment, especially when the water is low and clear like we have right now. But all I need to make this cast work is my hand's going to be out. It's going to be extended. And then – all I need is just maybe a foot or two of this uh, of a leader outside the rod, to, and I can just flip my wrist. And these rods are soft enough that res- they respond to less mass. So I can make 15, 20, 25-foot casts with basically just flipping it with my wrist rather than trying to wind up and make a big double-haul cast like you would with a traditional fast-action fly rod. So the one thing I would really recommend is just going to these softer-action rods because, one, they are easier to cast. And then the other part, when it comes to nymph fishing, just in general, it doesn't matter if you're contact nymphing or suspension tactics, is often your presentations are fairly short. You're going to be making multiple repeat casts. 
And if you're trying to punch that cast and you have to work hard all day for eight hours with a fast direction fly rod, it is going to be very challenging, you know, and you're going to get fatigued. So what's nice about this is just it's just a little flip of the wrist. And the great thing about these rods is, and this is why I got my kids at age four. I mean, they were they were fishing on the Madison River by themselves with 10 and 11 foot rods, and, and they were making casts 15, 25 feet because. A four-year-old, it doesn't require much. Even a, a four-year-old can employ the power needed to make this cast work. So I would say for if you're going to look at nymphing or even something as, as a middle of a road, and if you're fishing streams that really don't require long-distance casting or casting really big, heavy indicator rigs, I would say a lot of these European nymphing rigs would pretty much cover probably about 70% of your fishing. They're just an effective, efficient tool for casting. And lastly, I'm not trying to sell you on a rod, but these rods, one of the things you'll hear from some of the, you know, you can call them old timers, you know, and it's amazing how much hate mail I get sometimes from like some of these blogs you get, but, you know, advocating fishing like a two or a three weight nymphing rod. And you'll hear people say, well, that's, you know, that's unethical. You're going to kill a fish with a two or three weight rod. That's nonsense. A lot of these rods, what you'll see is that these rods have very soft tips. It may have a two- or a three-weight tip, but when you look down, when you start going down south on that rod, the butt section, the midsection, it's a pretty beefed-up rod. That's more of a four- or five-weight. So what's nice about these rods is if I want a delicate presentation or if I'm trying to finesse a fish in with light tippet, I'm going to go more in the vertical, use that soft rod tip. But if I want to really horse that fish in, if I'm fishing like four- and five-x tip and I'm fishing, you know, six-, seven-, eight-pound test, I can bend that rod. I can lower that rod tip. I can play that fish with that four and five white butt section. So it gives you actually two distinct levers for playing fish, and it gives you very easy casting up to about 30, 35 feet. So there's my sales pitch. There you go. Yeah. Well, a question came in on the Internet here, and it's kind of related, especially with uh, the kids and so forth. Uh, James in Colorado Springs asked, uh, how closely related is Tenkara fishing to the style of tight line nymphing that you do? Yeah, it's, it's very similar. I mean, you know, I've had several clients, you know, customers and guests, whatever you want to call them, uh, people that have shoulder issues that just don't have the power. And I've used Tenkara rods because it's such an easy lever to cast. So it's very, very similar from the casting and the leading perspective. The one downfall with Tenkara fishing is because it's a fixed line presentation, if you are fishing a windy stream, if you're on the silver, if you're on Silver Creek, Idaho, and all of a sudden you get the 30, you know, 30 to 40 mile wind gusts that often occur late afternoon there, when you're fishing with a 10 car rod as you're casting upstream and the flies are drifting down towards you, your method of line management is only by elevating the rod tip because there's no line to strip in. So you got to elevate the rod tip. And when you are elevating the rod tip higher and higher, you're creating a bigger sail for that wind to affect. So very similar, but if you are fishing streams that are very windy, I would recommend not using Tankara fishing just because the wind factor and the high rod tip angle. Mm-hmm. Okay, good point. Good point. I hadn't thought of that. Um, what about the, the different lines available now? Again, uh, I think you talk about, you know, there's lines that work better for these uh, contact nipping rods. And I was um, interested to find out, you know, what what is different about them and why they need to be different to be effective with contact nymphing. 
Sure. I mean, there's there's like a saying that people are using today, and within I would say probably like maybe the last three, two to three years, the refinement in the tools and the technology that we're using for tight line nymphing, it just makes the tight line game so effective. And what I mean by that is now we're using two and three weight rods, and the reason why we're using two and three weight rods, and at least I think one of the reasons why, is because one of the main themes within recent years is thin for the win. And, and what I mean by that is this, is that, you know, ultimately we are looking to have some sort of contact or control from rod tip to nymph. And long story short, the more mass you have in the guides and outside the rod tip, the greater the sag, the greater the belly, and the more disconnect you have between you and your flies. So with these European nymphing lines, and there's different tapers and different manufacturers, but what it is, it's essentially a very thin line, and some of them actually have a little bit of a taper. But what this allows you to do, it allows you to fish basically fairly shorter leaders, but allow you to fish line outside the rod tip that has little mass that's not going to create a sag. But it basically allows you to create a straight line or a straighter line from rod tip to nymph. And the other thing is, like, if you are fishing even, like, a, a traditional four-weight or five-weight floating fly line, you put in a weight-forward fly line, most of the mass is within the first, you know, 30 feet. But if you have six, seven feet of that fly line outside the rod tip, like the traditional tight line anglers, I mean, you're going to see, I mean, literally a big U, I mean, coming off that rod tip, belly, and then it comes up, and then there's your leader. With tight line nymphing, what we are doing, what makes this so effective now with this thin diameter, it allows you to fish incredibly lightweight flies. I mean, what the waters I'm fishing now, we have low water, but the water average depth might be maybe 20 inches, 24 inches, with like medium velocity. The only weight I was using today with my, with my guys was a single size 16 nymph with like a 330 second tungsten bead, or like a 2.0 bead. That's it, no additional weight, but just a thin profile fly. And when you are able to cast that fly in that current, and when you have no mass outside the rod tip, very thin mass, when you watch your sighter or that inline indicator, it's amazing just to see, you can see that line and leader just ticking, moving, moving, bouncing on the bottom. But the moment you put a heavy butt section leader or a heavily weighted fly line in the guys who are outside the rod tip, that little mass is going to create tension, and all that sensitivity, everything that you're seeing with that drift completely eliminates. It basically goes flat line. So the key with this technique is it allows you to drift really lightly way of flies, and uncompared to tight line strategies where you're often dragging low weight and you're looking to feel the strike, with this approach, it's so sensitive you're actually going to see the strike before you feel it. So it gives you like a half a second or a second kind of, you know, head advantage uh, on that strike. So it is just allowing you to basically drift your flies like a dry fly, comparing it to the traditional European or tight line strategies where you're kind of dragging it with a bu bunch of weight. So it is just those lines that give you that thin diameter, it just gives you much more sensitivity is what I'm saying. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, talking about other tools um, that you might use, what, what tools and materials do you always have with you? Uh, on the water um, that you just can't do without. And um, uh, there's a lot of photographs of you with a lanyard 
uh, and which looks like a minimum amount of tools hanging off the chest. Um, yeah, do you have I other mean, stuff I, in your day pack, or what, what is no, your? I, when, I, when I'm fishing by myself, basically um, these golden trout lanterns that Steve uh, makes are just fantastic. Uh, I have a double decker, so I have uh, like two C and I'll have one or two CNF, you know, chest patches on there, and that carries you know up to like 200 flies, which is more than what I need when I'm fishing. But on my lanyard, what I'll have is uh, in my pack or in my waders, I have usually like a small thing of split shot in case I need to use split shot. But on my lanyard, what I have is uh, grease, uh, like a paste that I can use to float the cider or float my fly line. I have uh, a blue tub of tungsten putty uh, just to add with a sh uh, split shot just to, you know, I don't just use split shot often. I'll use tungsten putty and shot in combination with one another. A couple spools of tippet, my basically a couple of color, you know, cider material colors and nippers. And basically that's it. I Within the last four or five years, when I'm not guiding, uh, when I'm fishing out for myself, that is pretty much all I'm using uh, day in and day out. That's I've really have tried to work hard to refine the garbage or the, the tools that we carry on the stream with us. Okay, good, good. Um, we had kind of a follow-up question here from on rods from James in Colorado Springs. He said, you mentioned using softer rods. He says, I find myself reverting to glass rods more and more. Is this smart or counterproductive? Well, no, I mean, it's the one thing I will say with glass is just with glass, when you're fishing, you can cast these longer leaders with glass, and it, it, it's fun. And to be honest with you, with most trout fishing, I prefer softer action fly rods for the shorter ranges. It's just easier for me to load the rod at shorter ranges. But the key point with these rods, with these European nymphing-specific rods, is that you're looking at a tip. The way that this cast is working, you know, instead of with a soft action fiberglass rod where you kind of have to use a wider range of motion, longer casting stroke, slower stroke to make the cast work, the beautiful thing about this, it's like the movement, the rod tip is basically the, you know, basically the top quarter, top third, depending on the rod manufacturer that you have. It's all a flex right, right there, and then the rod is sometimes fairly stout from there down. So all we're doing here is basically extending the hand out, just like you're going to throw darts. The hand's out, the wrist cocks back, and then you just basically just flip the wrist. So the way that these rods are designed, it requires nothing more than just a flip of the wrist, very similar to, to Tinkara fishing, where with fiberglass rods, which are great, you are going to have to make a, a much longer, wider sweeping cast, and it's not going to cast the long leaders as well. Okay. Uh, time to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk uh, about flies and uh, what's working, what's not working in the, in the nipping world. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. 
Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with George Daniel about nymph fishing. And uh, if you'd like to ask George uh, a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send in your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as we can tonight. Okay, George, uh, talking about flies, um, Larry Edens in um, New Mexico wrote in and says, usually there are a multitude of bugs on the water and a multitude of life stages. Besides trial and error, is there a better way to choose an imp pattern when there is no surface activity, something more scientific or more sophisticated than groping in the dark? Saying in the stream bed reveals how diverse and numerous the bugs are. How do you start? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question, and everyone's got their approach. But, you know, obviously one of the first things I will do is I will pick up vegetation, rock, kind of get an idea for what's going on. But with my, with my fly box selection, you know, my, my flies are incredibly simple. Basically, they are going to be darks, mediums, and lights. And... And that's going to arrange everything from hare's ears, basically just variations of hare's ears and pheasant tails for most of my mayflies. And then I'll have a couple um, just basically like larva patterns for caddis and then uh, just a couple soft tackles and either a pheasant tail or hare's ear along with some, you know, maybe a crest bug or a, you know, zebra midge. But basically... I just have maybe six or seven patterns, just variations, again, of hares, ears, pheasant tails, but they're just different shades and different colors, sometimes with hot spots, sometimes with, you know, flashbacks. It's not too scientific. All I'm doing is just trying to get within the ball game. You know, I think sometimes we tend to complicate things. I mean, there are definitely some fisheries where fish will key in to, to specific insects or different stages. And I think that's one of the questions here about imitative patterns coming up down the road. But I think the bulk of your major mayflies, stoneflies, and caddis can basically be just imitated with just a couple variations of hare's ears and pheasant tails. I mean, and that's just a couple, you know, species. You know, you could do some stoneflies and midges and so forth. But I don't get too crazy. And you just need to have confidence patterns. And I know people do a little roll their eyes when they say that. But, you know, one of the best lessons, you know, I learned when I was coaching, you know, when you're competing yourself, you're not really watching other people. You're, you're focused on your own job. But one of the greatest joys and pleasures I got was actually just watching, you know, my old teammates compete and then also watching some of the world's anglers compete side by side. And when these guys fish, I mean, sometimes you'll have an angler that's catching a lot more fish, but often they're all great anglers and the margins that they're catching between each angler is often pretty small. And when you look at their flies at the end of the, the day, for anglers that are fishing basically the same section of river, all within maybe a couple miles of each other, these anglers are all producing very similar numbers of fish. And you look at their flies, and they are completely changed. I mean, I have never been to a situation or a competition fishing situation where all the top anglers were fishing the exact same fly. Flies will range. So just try to keep it simple. Find your lights, mediums, darks. Find a couple attractors, some flashier patterns if you're fishing pocket water or off-color water where you need to have a little, you know, flash in there. But keep it simple. Uh, and as a result, you just find yourself fishing far fewer flies and just focusing more on the technique. Um, so I, I don't get too, 
crazy when it comes to you know a scientific approach to selecting flies for the most part. Yeah, I noticed um, in your book, you know, you have a great section on uh, on the flies you recommend, and you broke it down into suggestive, wild slash attractive, and dry sus fly suspenders. And and so my question was, you know, what about imitative flies? But you've just kind of answered it like um, they may not yeah. be necessary in ninety. You know, it's probably the eighty twenty rule, right? Eighty percent of yeah, the time and, you don't need to, to match the hash, right? Correct. And like we have we have the eastern green drake here. I know you you have the you know you have the western green drake, but our eastern green drake is very similar to like the hex. You know, it's a burrier. Yeah, uh, it's it's elongated. It's got very prominent gills. And when this thing moves or when it emerges, I mean, it swims. It looks like a looks like a blame changer or a, a blame chocolate game changer swimming through the water. So, same thing with like, like an isonachia. You know, you have insects that are it's a swimmer, and when it begins to emerge, it's got prominent gills and it can swim. Those are a couple situations when you know on streams when you have fish that are focused on a specific insect that has like volume you know, like the green drake, and then when we get good isonachia hatches, those are the few times where I will tie something very imitative of that specific insect. But for the most part, no, I, I keep things pretty uh, suggestive. Yeah, um, I did an interview recently with Doug Gibson, who has been guiding, I can't remember how many years, I'm just going to throw 50 years out uh, on Henry's Fork, which is known to be a tough fishery. And, and you had mentioned, too, uh, on the show tonight um, uh, that uh, you had to come up with a technique that worked there best. But uh, when we did the show with him, I think he mentioned he had about six or eight flies he uses, no more. <laughs> That's yeah. all he's ever yeah. used. <laughs> yeah. And he catches fish every day with his clients on the Henry's Fork, one of the tough fisheries in the United States. So uh, so there you go, you know. Um, uh, you don't always need a whole lot, but... Um, um, Dan Lindbarger in uh, Abington, Illinois, wrote in, and he wants to know, you know, when fishing an unfamiliar stream, is there a good go-to pattern that you use when you're not sure what the nymphs or trout, uh, you know, uh, what nymphs or trout are feeding on? No, I mean, usually when, when I'm fishing unfamiliar waters, if I'm fishing two flies, I'm going to go light and dark, or if the water's off-color, a little broken, I might do a, a dark-colored nymph to break through the silhouette along with some sort of a tractor flashier pattern, but no, I mean... You know, like one of my kind of attractor patterns, one of my go-to patterns now is uh, Spencer Higa's SOS. Uh, I tie that in, in the black version with a red flashback. But, you know, from an attractor standpoint, you know, that is a pattern. I've done a pile of travel this year. Uh, that is the one fly that I have, uh, I have confidence in, and I have caught fish in every stream uh, in probably 15 or 16 states so far this, this year on. So... I would definitely recommend something uh, on the lines of a, like a Higa SOS, and then just go something you know a little lighter, but just keep it simple. Find what works for you, uh, and you have confidence. And I, I can't say that enough because you, you do trips. I do so many guide trips, and you know there are days when there are slow, slow days, and there are anglers. You know you, you give them your flies, and it's a slow day. There's nothing you can do, and they, they lose confidence, and they lose confidence in their pattern. And they'll ask you, like within you know a half hour or so of not really doing much, can I put on one of my flies, one of my favorite flies? And it's a pattern that I would never fish on my home waters. But they put it on, and you can just see by their stance, their body posture, they all of a sudden they are tight, they are making, they are focused, they're concentrated, and they start catching fish. Um, and to be honest with you, 
it's and they're like, oh, that pattern works. It's like, no, your your technique pretty much sucked before that because you you were hunching your shoulders, you're making a bad cast. But as soon as you came up with a pattern that you had confidence in, you started making good casts, getting good drifts, and as a result, you're going to get fish. So, have confidence patterns is all I'm saying. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that that observation is is super important. Um, Rob in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, writes in as a fellow Central PA uh, fisherman. What are your favorite go-to nymphs for in local spring creeks? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of them, but uh, just, you know, to, to kind of keep on the, the, the crest bug and the, and, and the scud theme, you know, for nostalgic reasons and also because it's a great pattern, it, I use a variation of Joe Humphrey's crest bug. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the waltz worm and then the, the sexy waltz worm, which is also a Pennsylvania pattern, uh, the Ray Charles, which is a great bighorn pattern, uh, works incredibly well here in State College. And then for like a scud pattern, uh, it's John Wilson's trout crack. And all that is is just dubbing, whatever color dubbing you want for your scud um, on a curved shank hook, and then vinyl rib, uh, over top rib with monofilament. Uh, very simple but incredibly easy to tie. So those would be a couple of the, the patterns I would, you know, have uh, whenever fishing a, a spring creek or limestone or in PA. Okay, okay. Um we had several questions on this. Uh, Florian and, uh, and uh, Sutton, uh, Quebec, um, Doug McLean in Calgary, Alberta, Jason in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, all are asking about uh, drop shot weighting techniques. Um, so maybe you could kind of combine those together. What, what do you feel about those? Do you use them? Uh, if so, when do you use them? Yeah, I use drop shot techniques for... I mean, for years, uh, you know, I, when I, I first read about drop shot techniques, uh, I think Larry Tolis uh, wrote a book, uh, or maybe an article, I can't remember, but, you know, I read an article about 15, 16 years ago that Larry Tolis did on the, the I think they call it the drop shot, or some people call it the bottom bouncing rig. I, I don't, you know, it, it's just, you know, potato, potato, but basically, I use that technique a lot, um, even back home. Um, a couple of things you need to think about is, is this, you know, if you're drifting or you're dredging, okay, and what I mean by that is this, when we have insects that are hatching, that are emerging, one of the things I like to do is I like to actually fish my flies just a little bit more in the water column, not actually literally bouncing bottom and, and slowing down. I want my flies in the column, the same column that all the nymphs are starting to you know, create those gas bubbles and begin to float to the surface. That's where those fish are positioned or they're feeding kind of higher in the water column. And that's where, like the European nymphing technique, where you're fishing lightly weighted flies and you're just basically using that to, to drift in the bottom. Um, and I use the, the contact nymphing approach essentially any time I want to drift my flies. You know, slower than the speed of the current, but still the same speed as the main current that I'm fishing. Then there are times where wintertime fishing or early morning where those fish, there's nothing that's going on right now. And that drop shot technique, uh, it doesn't really, you know, I, I don't know what it does other than it slows your presentation down to the point where I think half the time it just keeps the fly in the strike zone even to the point where it just irritates the fish for such a long extended period of time. The best way I can explain this is anyone that's ever, like, used, you know, when I, when I was competing, 
in the wintertime, you know, and you had to get down and really just grind the bottom. We had to use weighted flies, as in what they call anchor flies. Sometimes, you know, it's just basically a sacrificial piece of lead that's, or tungsten that's tied onto a hook shank, and you're dredging that to keep your other fly down at the bottom. The problem is, because it's got a hook point and you're trying to dredge the bottom, it's going to grab bottom. Even if it's a jig, it's going to grab bottom. So you're dragging this nymph on the bottom, and all of a sudden you get stuck. And, you know, you're trying to free the fly. You're getting upset, and you're, you're trying different angles. You're wiggling the fly. And that fly is there for, like, it's 15, 20 seconds. And then you're wiggling. You're still trying to get, because you don't want to break the fly off. And then all of a sudden, your line just feels different. And what happens? A fish takes the dropper on the dropper, because that dropper was there for, basically, for 20 seconds, and it tangled. And I think there is something to the drop shot technique that once that technique allows you, especially... You know, it works in the great water conditions, but where I use that technique a lot is often in the slow, deeper pools, where those fish that are in the pools are not, in my opinion, they're not always in feeding mode. They're often in, like, a resting position, whereas the fish in, in the riffles and the runs, they're in there often, they're feeding. So the fish that are in those pools, I think you often need a little encouragement. You need to keep that fly or essentially irritate them long enough to get the fish to, you know, to strike. So I think that drop shot technique just does a great job holding those flies down a lot deeper. And another great point that a friend of mine, Doug, made, uh, that I fished with Doug Robertson up on, on the Green River, and then also I've heard Kelly Gallup talk about it, but when you're fishing on the way to flies, with this technique, it's a high degree of tension. When that shot is on the bottom, it's bottom bouncing on the bottom. And when you look at your leader or your indicator or your slider, whatever it is, you're seeing that bobber or that inline slider. I mean, it is bouncing. That shot is sending a shock wave up to the leader. And if you're fishing unweighted flies, it's actually moving. It's, that shock wave is going into the leader, into the tippet, and it's actually moving those flies. It's actually giving those flies movement, natural movement, like a, like a jigging, kicking motion. So I think it does two things uh, really well. And then the other thing I like about that technique is, when you do need to slow grind, you don't lose many flies. I mean, when I do this technique, rarely do I lose more than maybe one or two flies in an entire outing. Uh, so, again, slow grind, I think that technique is phenomenal. But when, when those fish are active and I want my flies moving a little faster, you know, and, and drifting in the column, I think the European nymphing techniques are superior because it just it keeps it in the zone and it moves at the speed that those insects are moving. Okay, okay, good, good. What other types of, you know, I know you use the weighted flies for competition because you're, you're forced to, right? You can't add additional mm -hmm. weight, right? Um, Correct. And, but when you're fishing for yourself, what other weighting methods do you use and how, you, how do you configure your, your leader to accommodate the weight? Yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff I'm doing is, I mean, it, you know, the bottom bouncing technique is great, but then, you know, and, hey, you know, one of the things I like is using tungsten putty with shot. I mean, if I'm fishing, you know, a spring creek or if I'm on, like, the Madison River, you know, and I want to fish, like, little shot backs, little serendipities, little, you know, just little tiny crystal dips or whatever, tiny flies, there's only so much weight you can put into a small fly. So I'm going to use split shot. And one of the things I like to do is, is just use using shot by itself is a hassle because, you know, one of the great lessons I learned from my mentor, Joe Humphreys, is that you need to change weights often based on every speed and depth of the water that you move. And when you're working rivers like the, the, like the Madison, where often 
I mean, you have shallow, and then you got super deep, shallow, super deep, and it's just very uneven. You're going to have to spend a lot of time making weight adjustments, especially changing flies or changing split shot. One of the things I like about using putty and shot is you try to find a constant. So what I mean by that is that when you find a section of wire, like a shallow section of water that you're going to fish, you put the smallest amount of split shot on the leader that allows you to drift through that drift. And any time you are going from shallow to deep and you need to add weight, all I'm going to do is just take that tungsten putty and mold it around the leader. And, you know, and that's my weight adjustment. And then when I go from deep to shallow, I just take the putty off or adjust the amount of putty that's on that leader. But using putty by itself, I don't care how good the putty is, often it comes off the leader. I mean, it just, you know, it just, you make a cast or you, it just falls off. What I like about, you know, I use this, uh, this uh, nymphing mud from Colorado. It, it's just phenomenal that I like to use, but it's just, I, I mold that around the leader, and it just allows me to make fine-tuned adjustments by just adding and adjusting. And because it's adhered to that shot, it never comes off. So it's just a, it's an easy way for a micromanager like me to kind of make simple, easy, and quick weight adjustments when nymph fishing. Do you, um, you know, to keep the shot from sliding down and also the mud, which is going to be attached to the shot, um, do you put in overhand knot above your your top fly or do you put in a yeah you can you can definitely use an overhand knot now back home i'm trying to go i'm trying to go as green as possible so i am using some i'm using a lot of tin for the, the spring creeks but when i go out west i'm still using some some lead and the, the stuff i'm using is called blackbird shot and i'm sure there's other great manufacturers out there but it's a it's a bc company uh that specializes in, in steelhead gear and what i believe but the blackbird shot, like it's awesome. Like once you pinch, you know it's not going to cut through your leader. But once you stick, once you put a pair of pliers on there or forceps, it doesn't slide. You can't move it. Once it's on there, it's on there. But the blackbird shot is probably some of the best shot uh, for staying on your leader without having to do an overhand knot uh, to prevent it from sliding. Does an overhand knot um, weaken the tippet at all? You know, I mean, if, if you're fishing, you know, if you're fishing back home in Central PA and you're fishing 5x tippet, which is I don't know five six pounds, and you're catching you know, anything from like one you know half pound to one pound fish, that overhand knot, I don't think it's going to do anything. But if I'm going out to the Henry's Fork and I'm trying to go after like a 20 24 inch you know bow or a rainbow, that overhand knot on 5x tippet with the force of those fish out there, I think that's going to be detrimental. So. You know, there are times where I, you can use an overhand knot, but you know, when I'm playing, when I'm going for big fish, like out west, I prefer not to use the overhand knot because usually when something breaks, that point of failure is right where that overhand knot is. So, do you use like a, a surgeon's knot or a blood knot or? No, I mean, what you can, do, what if you're going to do anything, uh, you can just basically do uh, what what I would do is actually take. Uh, just just do uh, basically like a uni knot and just do a short little uni knot somewhere on the leader. So it's basically just just adding, it's kind of like a surgeon's, you could do a surgeon's knot, but just do something that, that doesn't break up the main line, but just do something that's more of a strangulation knot where you're putting three or four wraps of monofilament onto the main line, but not breaking it apart. So a surgeon's or a uni knot that's trimmed really tight would do a job of preventing that shot from sliding down the leader. Okay, okay, good, good. Um, yeah, one thing I found out on this last uh, 
fishing trip that I did too was, um, you know, um, in national parks, uh, you're not allowed to use lead anymore. And uh, Correct. also, um, uh, no felt soles as well. Uh, likewise in Wyoming. Um, so there could be local issues with using lead um, as well. So anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Leaders. Um, George Hall, how to select modify leaders uh, to get deep fast without too much weight. You have a set pattern of fish adjust move. How much and how often? So um, uh, you want to talk about um, contacting leaders and maybe again a, a combo that you could switch back and forth to indicator nymphing? I think you talked a bit about that in your book as well. Yeah, you could do that. I mean, the one thing I want to preface is explain is, you know, in the books, I might put 10 to 20 liters in sometimes my books, and, and then people are like, well, you, you fish all 20 liters. Like, no. When I, there's only like one or two, you know, it's like basically one liter that I'm currently using right now with a European nymphing line. But I understand my shortcomings. I have many shortcomings, and as, a, as an educator or as a writer, what I try to do, especially for experienced anglers who already have a good foundation, is I try to provide them with a well-rounded view of leaders from some of my friends who I hold in very high regard so, so they can experiment, because I know I'm not the last word on this. Go out, find other sources, and basically put something together that works for you. But when it comes to tightline nymphing, this is the beautiful thing about tightline nymphing. My base, what I'm doing with my leader now, is just I'm using a European nymphing line, but then I'm just basically using a couple of sections of, of maxima tippet. I might use four feet of 15-pound test with a nail knot going right to the euro line, another four feet of 12-pound maxima, followed by you know maybe 20 to 24 inches of cider material. And then right from that cider material, I just go to level tippet. The advantage with tight line nymphing compared to indicator fishing, where often you have to, you know, you might adjust weights on the on the rig, or you're you're adjusting the indicator up and down the leader, which sometimes make it makes it more challenging to cast. With tight line nymphing, what I'm doing, the thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to simply base as long as you have the tippet length long enough to deal with shallow and deep water that you're fishing. All I'm doing with my rig is just holding that cider off the water higher or maybe at a shallower angle in shallower water. And as I go into deeper water, I might lower that cider or let that cider sweep to a steeper angle. But that's the adjustments. That's what's so nice about this technique is it just it simplifies all your gear. I don't need to go to different size indicators because I'm going to heavier rigs because basically I'm fishing under the rod tip You know, when I'm going vertical. So I'm basically holding that fly under the rod tip. And based on the position and the, the height of that rod tip, that's going to determine how deep my flies go. So it's just one system, and all I'm doing is just adjusting the height and the angle of the cider to the water. And that's all I'm doing. Super streamlined and very intuitive uh, for most anglers to grasp. And wh what is that? What is your formula for that? Basically? For this, again, it just works for me, but it's just four feet of 15-pound maxima, Four feet of 12-pound maxima, 20 inches of 8-pound cider material. That's 20 inches of that. And then off of that, I just go level tippet. You don't want to, in my opinion, you don't want to use a level tippet below the indicator because 
what I'm looking for is I'm trying to have that tippet sink all at the same rate. And if my tippet below my cider or any indicator for that matter is tapered, you are going to get a curve. There's going to be greater surface drag with that thicker diameter than with the smaller. And with your leader below the indicator or cider, there's going to be a curve. So really try to stress for anything below your cider is just level diameter tippet of whatever you want to use. But very simple. And what I like about this is I can tight line this. I can, you know, go short line with contact nymphing directly under the rod tip. But then, two, because the monofilament maxima is stiff and I do have some 15, 12-pound tests, which is a little thicker in diameter, if I want to cast like a light indicator rig or if I want to actually float the cider and actually cast or even a dry fly for that matter, that taper with that line and that rod that's soft that can load with minimal amount of mass I can cast, you know, 20, 25 feet uh, with, with pretty ease. So that's pretty much the one leader I would use day in and day out uh, for tight line nymphing or even lightweight suspension rigs. Okay, good. Um, Brian Adams in Bakersfield, he says, great to hear you're back on here. I'm having trouble turning over my long check nymph leader. It's 10 feet long or more, and sometimes the fly line is, not past the rod tip. Should I have a heavier nymph on the bottom? Can you give him any tips? Yeah, well, first, Brian, good to hear from you. And then second, uh, I think you need to talk to your wife about that because last time we fished together in California, I think his wife uh, was the, the top gun, so she's a solid stick. But <laughs> long, long story short, you know, with this cast, and there are things that, you know, I like about, you know, Joe's short little cast stroke, but when it comes to, like, nymph fishing, especially when you're talking about lightweight flies, you know, the cast stroke, and, and, like, when you watch guys like Lance Egan and Devin Olsen in their great nymphing videos, one of the things you'll see is just a very short, powerful snap. I mean, it's just pow. When you're casting lightweight flies, you know, it's not about kind of a slow overhand swing. What you are doing, you have very little mass. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to put that lightweight mass, as fat, moving that mass as fast as you can from point A to point B. And the way you do that is through a very short, straight, compact casting stroke. So when you're fishing low, you know, very lightly weighted flies, it is incredibly important that when you're casting, you know, you've got to make a very short, powerful back cast. I mean, just, it is a pop. You, you mean, you, you're, you're going to see your shoulders, everything just get tense up and it's just a pop. And the key with this casting is you've got to make a strong back cast because what you're doing is if you create enough energy in the back cast, it's going to be easy once that line strands up behind you to transfer that energy on the forward cast. Uh, but when you're fishing, don't go the heavier way it flies. If you're doing that, that's telling you that you're just not speeding up usually hard enough on the forecast. So just use more speed and more importantly, with less mass, you have got to often move the flies through a straight plane. The quickest way between two points is a straight line. So with lightweight flies, you can't really use this soft, wide oval cast. You have got to move those flies straight back, straight forward, as fast as you can to get that energy uh, directed. So I would work on doing that technique with lightweight flies. And I think you'll find it very helpful with your casting approach. Okay. And... Um we had several questions. I think you just answered it with your, you know, your your all-around contact missing leader. Uh, with um, Tom Melville, hopefully we answered your question. Josh in Utah, 
uh, Jim Lewis, Jackson Hole. I think uh, I think George answered all your questions there with uh, that contact that all around contact leader. Um, what about ciders? What, what kind of ciders do you? You had mentioned here just an inline uh, piece of mono cider, right? Um, yeah, I mean, different manufacturers, but, you know, again, you hear people will say, you know, you don't want to do this, you want to do this. Again, the way I break nymphing in, into is in two categories. You're going to be dredging or you're going to be drifting. So when you're dredging, when you are going true tight line techniques or true European, like the original, like Czech and Polish, where you're basically using heavily weighted flies and you're just kind of lobbing this heavily weighted flies on the bottom, and you're kind of just guiding them along. I mean, when you have a lot of weight on your rig, and sometimes that's necessary, like when you're fishing a bottom bouncing rig, because you have all that weight on the business end pulling in the opposite direction, it creates a high degree of tension. So in those situations, I don't think it really matters a whole heck of a lot what type of cider you have or the type of cider you have, because because of the high degree of tension, when a fish strikes, you are going to feel it just because of the amount of force and the tension on the rig. When you are drifting your flies, and like what I'm talking about, like what I'm doing home right now, and I think what you see a lot of the top-notch comp anglers that are doing, they are fishing lightweight flies, and they're drifting them in the water column. And because they are fishing so little weight, and when they're drifting, they're not dragging the fly. They're basically staying in front. But because there is not that high degree of tension between rod tip and nymph, when a fish strikes, you are not going to feel it just because there's, there's no tension there. There's very little tension. When you are drifting your flies, I really try to find something that is a little softer. You know, something like a Cortland. I, I like a lot of the Cortland mono, uh, their indicator cider material. It's opaque, very visible. It's a little stiff, but it's also a little soft in the same sense. But what I like about, like, those medium-soft cider materials is that when you are drifting that fly through the, the, the column, when you're doing it correctly, you're going to see, like, almost like a nervous twitch with that cider. It's just, it's like dancing. It's moving. It's, it's basically telling you what your flies are doing on the bottom. And when the fish strikes, all it is is just the hand, the cider's waving and dancing and this nervous twitch, and all of a sudden it just tightens up. And that's all I'm looking for for the strike. And if you use, a, like, a braided leader or, like, braid that's, you know, it's going to collect water and create sag, or if you use, like, heavy amnesia where it is just super stiff, very rigid, I don't, I just don't see the same properties in that presentation. It's a flat line presentation. I want to see that little hesitation, just that little nervous twitch coming to a stop, and I just find that that softer monofilament for me personally and for most of my clients is just, and it's not just what me, it's just what I think most of the people I work with, it's just easier for them to see that strike when you have that softer model that just tightens up in the presentation. So, Drift versus dredge, uh, those are my two ways I, I look at what cider material to use. Okay, okay. A um, couple of questions basically on setting up uh, multi-fly rigs. Um, uh, so the questions have to do with how do you do it, and um, do you do, you know, whether it's two flies uh, down below or you do a dry dropper situation, what knots do you use, what's your distance, uh, how do you configure those situations? So, I mean, a lot of times right now, because, I mean, I'm fishing low clear water. I'm needing to make, we're making, you know, what, what I'm calling like basically floating the cider where 
you know, we actually have some of that Europe, that nymphing line, maybe 15, 20 feet of that line outside the rod tip, and we're casting that, you know, fairly, you know, long leader, maybe 10 to 12 foot leader. But I'm casting, and and we're making longer casts, and because of the taper of the fly line is, you know, it's level and doesn't have a great taper, you know, I'm often fishing single flies a lot of times, uh, just because we need pinpoint accuracy, and we need to make a cast without tangling. And for a lot of people that are just getting into casting European nymphing rigs or any of this rig, nymphing rig, I really recommend starting with one fly. And then two is there's just not, right now, there's just not a lot of insect activity. We've been getting a low water, lots of high sun. These fish are pretty much tight to the bottom. So, you know, I'm often just fishing one fly uh, in those situations. Uh, the other times where I like to fish one fly is, often, believe it, like in pocket water, like heavy pocket water. Because, you know, one of the things you can look at when you're fishing pocket water is just you have this just incredible difference in different speed currents in a short given area. And what happens is if you're fishing, think about fishing two dry flies 20 inches apart and put that, put those, both those dry flies in that pocket. And with, within a couple seconds, you're going to see one current picking up one dry fly, another current picking another dry fly, and they're pulling against each other. And I think a lot of times in pocket water, when you're fishing multiple flies, I often think we're getting a lot of drag below the surface. So if you fish two flies, I'm going to fish them very close together in pocket water, or most of the time, I'm just fishing a lot of single flies because I think I get less drag, better contact, and I'm a lot more accurate with my presentation. Um, and then usually when it comes to, like, droppers, I don't tie a whole lot off, off the bend anymore. If I'm casting, like, indicator rigs, where you've got, you know, a buoyant or a wind-resistant dry fly or a big indicator and you're actually trying to cast and lob this thing, I might tie off the bend because droppers, have I tend to tangle a little bit more in those situations. But with contact nymphing in general where you're kind of just basically flipping and, and lobbing or just short-line cast, I'm almost always tying off, uh, off a dropper. And, you know, tangles occur because of erratic motions. Often, like the jerk on the other end of the rod, as, as my friend would always tell you. But when you can <laughs> learn how to make, yeah, just controlled flips. Like a lot of what I'm doing right now with my, a lot of people are just, I'm working with for a beginner standpoint. We're just using water tension casts. We're casting, swinging out, but we're not making flippy motions with the rod. We're just keeping everything under tension, flipping, leading, letting the water load the rod and make the cast. And I think today we fished eight hours. And I think I untangled uh, each of my guys one time because the droppers tangled a little bit. You know, and guys that are great anglers, again, I look at guys like Lance and Devin and Pat Wise and, and some of these other guys, they're fishing droppers. You know, they're casting with speed, but they have control, and they're not making erratic motions. And you're not seeing those guys tangle as much. But the tangles occur because you, you're just making crappy casts or – a fish, you know, when you're playing fish, you're bringing the fish right to the surface and it's flopping around the water. You're getting tangles there. So there's a number of things that are causing tangles, but rarely it's not because of the fly. It's because of the angler uh, behind the rod that's causing the tangle. So I, I fish droppers, and what I like about the droppers, it just allows me to give my fly a lot more movement, and then also it allows me to change my droppers. You know, if I want to change flies on my droppers, I can do that easy. If I'm tying off the bend, you know, bend to bend, and if I want to change my middle fly, now i got to make two knots versus one. Uh, and the other thing i found when t tying off the bend is, especially when you have a fish that eats that first fly, 
a lot of times that knot will slide down off the bend, and it almost creates like a guard, like a weed guard, so to speak, and a fish can't basically inhale the fly, you know, and essentially it just, you, you basically just kind of, it just slides through the mouth, and then you snag the fish on top of the head with the tailing fly. So I get so many more foul hook uh, fish uh, when I'm fishing off the bend than I do with droppers. Uh, so hopefully that answers. Yeah, no, that uh, covers it very well. Yeah, uh, just a few more questions, and we'll call it a night here. Uh, Andy Cordova, he says, George in, in Reno, Nevada, writes, and he says, uh, George, I've been fly fishing for decades, but have only recently take up, taken up your own nymphing. I have had some success, but I'm wondering if I'm missing a lot of fish by not recognizing when the fish eats. What percentage of takes would you say are just visual cider cues versus actual feel of a, of a grab? Yeah, again, you're, you're fishing a lot of weight, you're going to feel all the strikes. But, you know, back in the 80s when I started nymphing, you know, especially like indicator fishing stuff, you know, there was always a saying, like, a good nymph fisher could pick up 60% of the strikes, and, and we're missing so many strikes. With this technique, because of the refinement in the rods, the lines, and the thinning out, I am almost certain that we are in, like, the 90 percentile, somewhere in that 90 percentile. And it's just like nymphing eyes. When I go down to the Bahamas, you know, once, you know, I think there's a guy named Mike Williams that works for the Reno Fly Shop out there. Just great guy. He's got a dialed, a nymphing system dialed in really well. But when you're fishing out there, all you need to do is just go into an area where it's stocked or heavily fished, make a couple casts, work with someone, but you get 10 or 10, 10 or 12, 15 quick responses in a, in a given area. You develop those nymphonides. You know exactly what to look for. Like when I go down the Bahamas, like the first hour, hour and a half, my bohemian guide would be like yelling at me because he wants me to look for shallows. I can't see shallows. I'm not seeing what he's seeing. But once I see those bonefish on that flat two or three times, the pattern recognition kicks in, and I know exactly what to look for. But with contact nymphing, I'm telling you, it is a subtle. It is so subtle, especially when you're fishing lighter weight flies. So... That is why you want to have a sensitive system, and then often even just to add a little bit of visibility, just even in your cider, cut your cider in different sections, do a blood knot, and just leave tag ends that I call basically bunny ears, or some people call turkey feet because it looks like a turkey feet. But those ears, when those ears are on those tags, you're going to see those ears dance and twitch, and you're, that's going to give you another cue whether or not when the fish strikes is when that tension sets in. But with this technique, I you know, I'm going to tell you this right now. People don't want to talk about, you know, they want to talk about patterns, rigs, and so forth. And this is why, like, the video that I'm going to be working on, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the casting. And I know that's not sexy. No one, like, like in the book, I talk a little bit about casting. Like, yeah, we don't want to listen to casting. I would say 80% of the problems with nymphing arrives because of bad casting. With this technique, it's a short-range presentation. So when you're making this cast, the cast, when you look at Lance and Devin, when they're in their videos and when, when they're lined up, they will move a little bit, but they're squared up to their target, but they're not dropping their shoulders. They're not twisting their shoulders left to right. They're squared up, and they're making a, a perfect pitch. And when you watch their line leader land in the water, you see that sire just go tight from the very beginning. And what this allows you to do, it allows you to fish flies on the drop, and you can have control and you'll see those presentations, but I'm telling you, if you drop your shoulders, and what I can tell from beginning casters, if I see your shoulders starting to hunch or if I see your eyes looking down the water, 
I could tell immediately that you're going to take that rod tip and you're going to push it down the water and you're going to put slack in there. The key with this, I think, is just squaring up to your target, getting lined up, and then when you make that cast, there is no rotation of shoulder. The hand is in front. But the key with this is having control from the very beginning, is starting low with the back cast and aiming high, making sure that when that rod tip stops high off the water, that cider is immediately off the water and it's in control. So just watch some of these films, you know, like The Modern Nymphon by Lance and Devin. Great film. You know, they don't talk about it as much, but watch. Just spend a few minutes watching, unmute, just basically mute the, the video, but watch their casting techniques. It's flawless, but they can square up and they can ex accelerate, make a cast, and have control from the very beginning. If you turn, throw your shoulders, you throw slack in there, you're going to spend three-quarters of your drift trying to regain control, and by the time you regain control, it's over. So focus on the casting, and that's what I would recommend. And if you do that with tight line nymphing, and you're tight and you're squared up, you're going to see you know, your takes increase three, sometimes you know, fourfold. Well, that's uh, a good answer to end the show. <laughs> lots, of, lots of good information in that answer, so... I appreciate that, George. Um, time to wind things up here. We still have a few more questions, but uh, it's getting late. I want to mind my time here. So, uh, George, hang with me just a few more minutes. Uh, we're going to give away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and a copy of your latest book, Nymph Fishing, uh, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Uh, want to find out more about uh, Stackpole, go to stackpole.com, stackpolebooks.com, sorry. Um, and you can find out about all the different books they have to offer there. Uh, Family Ties, that's T-Y-E-S. Family Ties is an organization which uses a shared interest in fly fishing and fly tying to enhance youth development and family relationships. They utilize resources in schools, communities, and businesses, and they invite your participation. Go to their website at uh, familyties.com. That's family, T-Y-E-S, dot com. Family Ties, where every fish is a trophy and every kid is a hero. And just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. Um, these uh, first two are drawings from uh, in which I randomly uh, selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. Uh, you don't want to miss out on a chance to, to win one of these uh, incredible prizes we have to offer. So if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show uh, to get the information we need to, to, to send you your prize. Uh, first thing up is um, one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. If you don't win tonight, go there and join. Uh, it'll be uh, a great organization to support, and uh, you'll learn a lot about conserv the conservation efforts going on. So again, flyfishersinternational.org. And our winner for that is James Crosby in Colorado. James Crosby. So congratulations, James. Um, and we have your email address. We'll contact you after the show and uh, collect your information. And the second thing we're giving away is a Fly Fishing and Tying Journal subscription, a one-year subscription. Uh, you can find out uh, more about its uh, publisher, AmatoBooks.com, by going to AmatoBooks.com. Check them out. Lots of books, lots of publications on, on fly fishing. 
Uh, our winner for that is Al Getz in uh, Nebraska. Al Getz in Nebraska. So congratulations, Al. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy that subscription as well. So now we'll give away um, George Daniel's uh, book, Nymph Fishing, New Angles, Tactics, and Techniques, published by Stackpole Books. Uh, again, stackpolebooks.com. Uh, they produce some of the best books out there on fly fishing, and uh, I know you'll uh, you'll enjoy this book if you win it. If you don't, check it out and go buy one. Help uh, George on his way with his fly fishing career. Okay, so the question is going to be, George mentioned two types of wading material that he uses most often, two types, um, and these can these are brand names. So tell me the two types of weight material that he uses when waiting, when he's not putting weight into the fly. So, uh, George, we have to wait here a second. To, uh, we've got a slight delay before they hear the question, and then uh, we'll give him a few minutes to type here and see what we've got. So I'm just refreshing the queue here and uh, waiting for an answer, and uh, hopefully we'll get one pretty quick here. And um, let's see here. And we got, uh, let's see, nope, that's not quite right. Um, close, James. Yeah, I'm looking for a particular kind of Florian uh, uh, putty. Uh, they don't have it quite right yet. <laughs> Let's see. Still looking here, George. We've got a lot of different ones here, but uh, not quite what I'm looking for. Hold on, we'll get one yet. Okay, it looks like we may have a winner here. Uh, nymphing, let's see, well, that's not, uh, tungsten putty and blackbird shot. Would you consider that a winner? Yeah, we can call that a winner. Um, it was actually what I was looking for was nymphing mud that um, George had mentioned in Blackbird Shop. So uh, anyway, that was uh, Richard uh, Scalone in Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania. Hey, just around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, Richard, for paying attention and putting in your – we had a lot of answers there, but none of them was right on uh, as close as this one. So uh, I uh, – I, Appreciate everybody participating and playing in the game. Um, George, um, oh, and uh, Richard, just send me your address in the uh, same box you just sent it in for the question. Uh, I've got your name. I've got your email address. Just need your shipping address so I can get the book shipped out to you from Stackpole. So thanks uh, for, for paying attention and playing. George, uh, thank you so much for being on the show again. This is the third time around, I think, for us, and uh, it's always a pleasure, always 
plenty to learn from you, and thanks for sharing your knowledge and your experiences with us. No, it's uh, it's been an honor, and, and thanks for having me. So, and and thanks for everyone who uh, listened. So, I greatly appreciate it. Sure, sure. Our our next broadcast will be on October 18th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on that show, I'm going to interview Kelly Gallup, and our topic for the show will be Madison River, Upper, Lower, and in the Park. Kelly lives and runs a shop and lodge just minutes from the Madison River. He's guided on the river for over 17 years and knows the river intimately. Whether you want to fish the upper, the lower, the section in the Yellowstone Park, he'll be able to guide you to success. Listen in and discover what it takes to be successful on this famous river. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Whitray Key Fishing Lodge, uh, Watermaster for, uh, for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Bye.